2: Good afternoon, Bay Area. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio, broadcasting from my palatial office here on Ross Avenue in San Jose. And yes, palatial was intended to be uh, a little bit on the sarcastic side. I have a very simple office here in San Jose. I don't believe in hardwood paneling or floors or marble countertops. It's just not the kind of Person I am. It's not the way I roll to use a probably outdated set of jargon there. I want to let you all know out there that even though today was the deadline to deliver petitions to the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association uh, so that they could then start tallying them up to see if the repeal the death tax initiative could make it on the November ballot, That's repealing the part of Proposition 19 that um, basically um, causes real problems for people who want to leave their houses and other properties to their children. Well, they have announced that they are extending the deadline to receive those petitions to next Friday, April 22nd. So if you have petitions and you're going, oh, no, I've reached the deadline, it's too late. You've got another week. Take those around to your neighbors and your family. Make sure everybody's all in the same county, registered to vote in the same county when you fill out the form. Everyone on one form, they can hold six people on one form. They all have to be registered voters in the county where where you are. doesn't have to be the county where they're signing, but everybody signing one of those petitions has to be a registered voter in the same county county so get those filled out go around this weekend get that done if you have a bunch of them i think i still have three or four more outside of my office here at 3535 ross avenue suite 308 if you want to come by snag one of the last one or two that i have out there take them around get them signed over the weekend uh walk talk to your neighbors get them signed Get them back in the mail right away, preferably on Sunday, so they can make it to Sacramento. And the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association has committed to getting them all counted and reviewed to make sure that they can end up with at least one million verified registered voters in the proper counties filled out correctly. They're trying to collect a million and a half signatures so that they can be pretty much assured that they have a million that are going to be good, because they need a million actual signatures that qualify to get on the ballot in November. So, starting the show today, I want to let you all know, uh, I do have another workshop coming up. My uh, state planning workshop will be next Saturday morning on the 23rd of April starting at 9 o'clock, going till about 10 or 10.30 at the Silicon Valley Business Center on Camden Avenue near Lee. It's about a quarter mile from my actual office, so it's very close by to my actual office. You can register for that by going to uh, eventbrite.com and looking for um, any workshop on April 23rd or going to my website at lawbob.com and clicking on the link at the top for workshops and seminars. And I'm looking at that right now, workshops and seminars. A page will open up on my website that describes everything and then uh, describes what the workshop's about. And then you can click on the button that says register now. And register now will take you right into Eventbrite so that you could register. I want to let everybody know face masks are optional for this event. You can certainly wear one if you wish, um, but I'm not going to require it. And you're not required to wear one to come to this event. So, so far, we have, um, let's see, we have, I think, 11 or 12 people signed up so far. I've given space for 30 people. Someone else just called a short while ago requesting to reserve a space, so I'll call them back after the show and make sure they get in. But um, these workshops do have a tendency to fill up, so if you're really interested, now's the time to go to my website and register for the workshop, which will be next Saturday morning, the 23rd, starting at 9 a.m. Now, I'm going to dive right into the show today with my usual approach, which is questions and comments from around the state of California. And what I do is I take, these are actual situations that people are dealing with around the state, and what I do, if you're just tuning in for the first time, is I kind of lay out the situation, and then I, uh, I turn around and I... Um, analyze the situation, and then give what uh my interpretation legally of what the effect of the situation is, and maybe what somebody might do in order to deal with it. So my first question comes out of Los Angeles. Person says, "I do not like how my family manages things, unfortunately." In case anything happens in the future, whatever that may be, I want to have my affairs entrusted to someone who's trustworthy and makes good decisions. Are there professionals, like attorneys, for example, who do this that I could set up to handle things for me in the future? And how can I make sure absolutely absolutely sure my family has no rights to get into my affairs? First of all, you can actually do an estate plan and you can designate in your estate plan who you would want to handle your property held in a trust, for example, who you would want to handle other financial matters such as filing tax returns and dealing with government agencies and uh, withdrawing funds from your retirement plans if you needed money, and who would make medical and healthcare decisions for you. All of those legal documents are prepared as part of a typical estate plan And you can designate someone to handle things for you. There actually are professionals. Some attorneys may do this, not as likely, but there are actually licensed individual fiduciaries that are licensed by the state of California. Many of them actually started their professional careers working in the public guardian's office in whatever county they happen to have their business now which meant that they were professional guardians and conservators working for the county where they lived and handling the estates of people um, both living and deceased that did not have anybody else to handle them uh, for them. And in a case like this, I would probably have the person interview a number of local fiduciaries until they found one or more that they were comfortable with write them into the estate plan, provide them copies of the estate planning documents ahead of time, and also give that fiduciary the ability to appoint a successor, one or more successors to himself or herself, so that there is always a professional handling things for this person. As for making absolutely sure the family has no rights, pretty much by having a solid estate plan, Uh, you could even go one step further and indicate explicitly that you would not want uh, someone to actually have any rights to handle things for you but that would be a little more extreme we'll be back after this first show break this is attorney bob bergman host of plan your state radio talk to you after the break
1: This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW.
2: Hi, welcome back to the second segment of our show today. Here's a question out of San Diego, California Can I amend my trust to leave out adopted grandchildren? Person says, I would like to amend my trust to exclude adopted grandchildren from getting anything. They'll only get a share if my son is not around, but just in case. Is this possible? What this person is asking, I'm not really clear on. The first part sounds like she wants to completely disinherit any grandchildren of hers that may be adopted. The second part sounds like She doesn't want them excluded if if her son, which is apparently the parent of the adopted grandchildren, is not around, meaning assuming is already deceased. If things are just left to the son, otherwise to the son's issue, and if issue is defined as natural and adopted grandchildren, then that means the adopted grandchildren would only step in for a share of anything if the son was already deceased. That being said, it's often very important in planning that if you have someone that has an adopted child, for example, if you have a child that has an adopted child who is your grandchild, Um, It's very important uh, from a definitional standpoint in your plan, you might want to clarify um, that issue, your issue, meaning your children, includes your children and their children, whether natural or adopted, unless you want to exclude adopted children, in this case, adopted grandchildren. So it's kind of a little bit complicated. It's one of the reasons why estate planning actually is a specialty in the law. And uh, people can actually make some serious errors trying to do it on their own, um, either by inadvertently giving rights to somebody they're trying to exclude or inadvertently excluding somebody they didn't want to exclude. So um, that's why I suggest this is something that a qualified estate planning attorney is the better way to go if you're doing planning, especially if you have a blended family where each party, each spouse has one or more children from another relationship, uh, or maybe his kids, her kids, their kids, or his kids, his kids, their kids, her kids, her kids, their kids, whatever it happens to be you you may need to really look carefully at planning so that you don't either uh, inadvertently include someone you don't want to include or inadvertently exclude somebody that you want to include. So it's very, very uh, possible in a blended family situation to actually make some serious mistakes when doing planning, which is why you want to have someone that knows what they're doing assisting you with that now here's out of Yountville, California which I believe is up north of us here in the Bay Area Um, person says how do I assign my good friend who lives in my mobile home as the beneficiary of the mobile home instead of my spouse or kids good friend will be unable to afford living without my mobile home A mobile home doesn't have much value. She has put much time and effort to repair and make the mobile home a comfortable living space. So I think it's reasonable to put her as beneficiary instead of my kids and spouse that will inherit my $2 million house. Okay. This is a fairly simple question that has a lot of things that need to be known. First of all, is this mobile home something that is owned completely separate from this person's marriage. Um, in, in other words, um is this mobile home separate property and not part of the marital property? Because the person indicated they're married, they referenced a spouse. If they really wanted to make sure that mobile home is going to go to um, this good friend, then they could consider setting up a trust solely to own the mobile home with the friend as the beneficiary of the trust so at the death of this person the mobile home will go to um, that beneficiary but there's other possible issues here Uh, there may be community property interests that the spouse has in the mobile home even if it's separately owned because of the fact of the marriage. So this is the kind of thing where it's probably best if this person work things out with their spouse and have their spouse agree in some way that yes, uh, it's okay uh, to just go ahead and uh, leave this mobile home to your friend uh, because I think that's a good idea too. That would be the better approach to take. Just doing it unilaterally, then uh, that would mean that there is always the possibility that the spouse will come back and try to lay claim to some ownership of the mobile home because of the fact that there was a marriage. And uh, that could cause tremendous complications after the fact. Here out of San Jacinto, California, I guess San Jacinto, yeah, yeah. Would my son's widow have any rights to our second home? We have a second home in our living trust that we've allowed my son and his wife to live in rent-free. If our son dies, will his widow have any rights to the house? They've lived there for over 10 years. Well, if they've been living there rent-free, with your permission they're what are called tenants at will meaning that they have a tenancy in the property um, but they can only stay in the property as long as you decide they can stay in the property and if you wanted them to move you could give them a notice to move Uh, typically this would be a 30-day notice to move if they didn't move you could then evict them from the property because the fact they've been living there rent-free means they have really gotten a great deal, but they don't have any ownership rights in the property by virtue of having lived there for 10 years. So the short answer is um, your daughter-in-law would not have any rights to the property at all just by virtue of having lived there for 10 years rent-free. That doesn't get you any kind of property rights living there rent-free. Okay, let's see here. Uh, so, we're ending up the second segment of our show today. When we come back after the break, I'll continue with more Plan Your Estate Radio. This is attorney Bob Bergman.
1: Back to Plan Your Estate Radio
2: with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back to our show for the second half. Okay, out of Daly City, California. My mother established a living trust in 2006. She acted as settlor and trustee until she passed away. I'm the successor trustee, and when I inspected the living trust... I realize the APN, that's the assessor's parcel number, associated with their property, has an incorrect APN recorded on the deed filed with the county. I'd like to know, technically speaking, how difficult it is to correct the APN specified in my mother's living trust recorded in the county office. Will the county void my mother's living trust altogether? since when it was written the legal description with an erroneous APN to start with my concern is such error correctable after 16 years would this problem be a showstopper preventing the redistribution of estate property to be performed by the living trust trustee well let me kind of address that first of all the parcel number appearing on a deed is is not what determines whether or not the deed is correct or not. Um, it's just one one piece of information. In fact, a parcel number doesn't even need to appear on a deed. What's important is the legal description of the property. And if the legal description of the property is accurate, that's the most important thing. What's an issue is if the legal description of the property is missing something or it's incorrect has the wrong lot number or something like that that's a problem. Um, in a case like this, I would contact the recorder and see if it's possible um, when when actually when transferring the property out of the trust I would probably do the transfer as normal, put the correct parcel number on the transfer paperwork, but then put a statement in that transfer paperwork on the deed indicating that the prior deed uh, deed recorded as document number whatever it was on whatever date it was recorded um erroneously reported the a p n as one two three four five six seven um the true a p n was one two three four five six eight um and uh and this and that's the correct number on the transfer that you're doing it shouldn't really be an issue because it's really just a typographical error uh having the wrong parcel number is a typo having the wrong legal description or part of a legal description is more serious than just a typo uh because you can't really transfer the property if the legal description was incorrect But an incorrect parcel number, that should be pretty easy to actually deal with. So I wouldn't be tremendously concerned about that. It's just you do want to have someone like me help you with that to draw up the paperwork and report it so that the assessor and the recorder both know what are going on. Okay, so in my mom's trust, there are three houses that need to be sold. But I have a beneficiary, not a blood relative, that was removed years ago by her, and I'm not sure if he's going to contest it. He has been sent the notice about her passing and copies of the trust. Okay, that sounds like the probate code section 16061.7 notice uh, sent out with a copy of the trust. Uh, It notified him he's not in her trust and will not be receiving any other communication. Does he have 120 days to contest it, even though she took him out over three years ago? Can I sell the properties? Do I have to wait until after the 120 days to distribute the money to the three beneficiaries that are in the trust? Well, the 120 days is referring to a notice period that typically applies to, the, to that 16061.7 notice from the probate code, which is 120 days from the date of the notice, if you provide a copy of the trust with the notice. Um, and that's basically a drop-dead date, and after that time expires, someone can't really go to court and complain or try to attack the validity of the trust, or, you know, it was obtained by fraud or something like that. The key is, uh, you probably should wait... ...until after the 120 days to actually make a distribution. uh, You can probably go ahead and sell the properties. But the key is if you're concerned about this person coming back... ...and attacking the most recent version of the trust... ...as being invalid... ...then the more safe thing to do, the more conservative thing to do... ...would be to wait for the 120 days to pass before selling property and then distributing the proceeds to the beneficiaries. Um, that, um, that right there would be the conservative thing to do. Um, but there's, but, uh, and I also, also advise anybody, unless you have all of the beneficiaries uh, receiving things and they're all on the same page right now and everybody's cool with this wait for the 120 days to run. I've had a few situations where I had to include disinherited heirs um, in that notice. Even though they were disinherited under the law, they were entitled to a copy of the terms of the trust um, because they were actually, they would have been the intestate heirs of the person who died, the people who would actually inherit if there was no will at all. And in those cases, I have always waited until after the 120 days before actually um indicating now you may uh you are free now to distribute property to the various beneficiaries of the trust uh you would want to do that and wait that long because you just don't want to have uh have a situation where you've done a distribution and now the person sues and they're successful. Um, now, in many cases, uh, I, I've never seen someone successfully sue to overturn a trust. I'm sure it can happen. I've never seen it happen in my practice. And uh, I've certainly never had anybody done it, uh, done it successfully uh, or even sue when I've done the trust. Except one time. One time I did the trust and the disinherited only child... Did sue, claiming that his mother was an alcoholic. She had no idea what she's doing. All kinds of really defamatory things. Uh, Understand he had been out of contact with his mother for 10 years by the time she met with me. She didn't even know if he was alive or dead, but she decided to uh, disinherit him completely and uh, decided to turn everything over to... Uh, her siblings, and in that case I uh, had taken uh, notes indicating specifically why she was disinheriting him, and it was not flattering. He sued. He had a deposition scheduled for me. I went in first time I've ever had a deposition of me conducted. I've conducted them in the past, but uh deposition of me. And uh, very quickly the question came up, did my client ever indicate why she wanted to disinherit her only son? And I said, why, well, yes, she did. I wrote down, I asked her that question. I wrote down her response in my notes here. Would you like me to read it out loud? The attorney questioning me went, uh, okay. I don't think he expected the answer that I gave him. I read it out loud while her son was sitting six feet away from me watching my testimony And uh, as I was reading out of the corner of my eye, I saw the court reporter, uh, because there was a court reporter taking all the testimony down, I saw the court reporter hear what I said, roll her eyes, like, oh, wow, that was harsh. And then I finished and uh, stopped talking. I saw my client's son, uh, the blood drain out of his face, if you've ever seen that happen, Someone's in shock and they go white. You may have heard that expression, the blood drains out of their face. Um, And uh, the next day, um, the, the deposition was basically done at that point. The next day, the attorney, other attorney called the attorney representing my client, who is the brother and successor trustee, and indicated they were dismissing the lawsuit with prejudice. With prejudice means... It's done, it's over, they can't refile ever again. It's as if it never happened and could never happen ever again. That's why it's important to take notes. (laughs) Uh, And that's why I always take notes when someone wants to disinherit somebody. I want to know why. Uh, What is the reason why? And uh, so I can take it down in my notes why they're being disinherited in case the question ever comes up in the future and they're trying to challenge whether my client knew what they were doing. And, um, you know, I learned long ago to actually make sure that you have uh, documented all that. Okay, out of Big Bear Lake, California. I'm guessing that's up north or in, in the Sierra somewhere. My son's incarcerated in the Department of Corrections in Oregon. If he inherits money from me, will the money be confiscated by the Department of Corrections? Um, not really, but if you want to make sure, make sure that you leave the property in trust for your incarcerated son with somebody else in charge of it, um, and then, uh, maybe put limitations on how it can be used. I could do that for this person. That would be pretty much my recommendation there. So we're coming up on the third break of the show today. When we come back, we'll finish the whole, finish the show and bring it home with more plan your estate radio talk with you after the break
1: now back to plan your estate radio once again your host estate planning trust and probate law specialist attorney bob bergman
2: And welcome back to the final segment of our show today. Okay, out of Oakland, California. This person says, my husband and I are separated, not legally. That just means they're not living together. They haven't filed for a formal legal separation through the courts. He's trying to sell a commercial property owned by his corporation. Is he required to have me review and sign a spousal consent form? If he does not, are there consequences? Also, he acquired his parents' home after their death from the family trust. Should he have given me a spousal consent form for that real estate transaction? Thank you. First of all, these questions really are more family law questions as to whether or not spousal consent would be required at all um, it's it, it's hard to tell from this whether or not the corporation uh, is actually separate property of the husband meaning not actually uh, owned by the marriage um, and it's so so. there's a really a lot to unpack in the question much more than I could possibly answer here but uh, just be aware that in some cases uh, you do need spousal consent to enter into transactions and, um, and even if there is like in the case of this a corporation uh, now typically the corporation you, you would not need your spouse's consent to sell the property out of a corporation that you own and that you operate um, but, to, but if the spouse is a shareholder uh, you might need that consent. The better thing is to err on the side of caution and have the spouse consent to the sale, but I don't know that there is a strict legal requirement for that. I would defer to my family law colleagues to determine whether or not that is, um, that is uh, something that is possible. Okay, my grandmother has now passed and were concerned about a past beneficiary contesting it within the 100 day, 120 days of the notice. My grandmother amended her trust around four years ago and took out her step-grandchild. Due to some harsh actions from the step-grandchild, my grandmother removed her. My grandmother reached out several times and the step-grandchild would not reply or respond and wanted nothing to do with any part of our family. Can she contest it now and win since she was originally part of the second amended trust? There was an original trust that was amended to add her and then amended again to take her out. Well, there's nothing to stop somebody suing. We'll start with that. Um, Whether they prevail or not is a whole separate issue than whether they have the right to sue or contest in order to successfully contest uh, this step-grandchild to try and get it back to the Second amended Trust where the step-grandchild was part of the beneficiaries, she would have to prove that Grandma had no ability whatsoever to make a change to Grandma's trust four years ago to take her out. She'd have to prove that Grandma either was mentally incompetent or that she had been... Uh, She had been um, under undue influence by others who conspired to have this person removed as a beneficiary. Very, very, very high bar to clear if you're trying uh, trying to attack the validity of a trust and trying to have a trust denied as being invalid. And especially if it's been four years ago, um, and Grandma has been reaching out all this time, there's probably plenty of evidence that Grandma was completely mentally competent, knows exactly what she was doing, which means that it's not likely that there would be any success in having Grandma's trust overturned. Here's one out of Riverside. My husband is an alcoholic. He's been in treatment, but he relapses consistently. I think the person meant constantly. How can I protect my assets in case he gets a DUI, driving under the influence, a drunk driving charge? I'd like to know what I need to do to protect my assets, well maybe protect that too, protect my assets in case my alcoholic husband gets a DUI or causes an accident. Truthfully, about all you can do is see if, first of all, if you can convince him to transfer everything that that you own together into solely your name and do that well in advance of any kind of DUI or transfer it all into, um, uh, into your name and then you can put it into a trust and then you can make the trust so it will take care of your husband if you die before he does. But the only other thing you could do to protect yourself, sadly enough, is maybe to end that marriage, have property divided up, and you take your share and go as fast and as far away as possible so that you're no longer having your share of the property subject to being taken by a creditor. Well, that's the end of our show today. I hope you all have a great weekend. And uh, I'll be back next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. And I just want to remind you, I do have a workshop coming up on April 23rd. Go to my website at lawbob.com and look at workshops and seminars for more information. Talk with you next week. Goodbye.
1: You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman.